I was the guy that would show up at the club with the, you know, Lamborghini and everybody would like open the doors and like do that. And I started realizing that everybody knew me for my cars, but nobody knew me for me. Right. And so that started bothering me a lot. I was like, if I die tomorrow, I'm only as good as the next guy that shows up with a better car, you know, because then someone's going to outdo me. So I started really rethinking why I was, what I wanted to happen out of my life. And the one thing that really was a theme in my life entirely was mentorship. I had, like, the reason I was super successful in banking, in my investment company and everything else, was always because I was really good at teaching and training people. JB, the wolf is in the house at the wolf's den, back from my month-long, almost month-long tour. It's good to be back. Got a great guest here, Pedjman Kadimi, but PJ or fucking PJ. I understand stick with PJ though. He seemed like, awesome, seem like an awesome dude though. So PJ is an expert at alternative investments uh, and also has a, a very successful business at coaching and mentoring young entrepreneurs. I want to focus in on, on both those. I want to start off though with the uh, alternative investments. Specifically, you, you, you're in an area that, I, that I I knew existed, but I didn't know, I know much about, which is watches. So in, in buying and selling and trading watches and also in exotic automobiles, which I've had my share of. But let's start with the watches here and explain to me exactly what this business is. So watches in general, there's a couple of thoughts to what I do with watches. But the basic idea is that I've never met a poor jeweler. You know, when I was growing up, I always met these jewelers and they all, all had a lot of money. So I started wondering, like, what do they what are they doing and how do they make their money? And I started realizing that the watch market was this giant like watch conspiracy where there were huge margins, like right. almost 80, 90 percent sometimes. And nobody seemed to talk about it. So it was like this quiet thing. You're either in the know or you're not in the know. And so I started kind of understanding that whenever you have such high margins in a business where there's so much money leveraged, then there has to be an opportunity for other people to jump into the market. And that's when I started not looking at watches as a just buy and sell opportunity, but rather understand it from an investment opportunity, short-term, long-term, hype markets, and everything else similar to a regular investment in stocks or anything, except really based on an asset that wouldn't appreciate past something I call a bottom cash value. This is where the difference is between, let's say, an investment in a speculative like penny stock mm -hmm. versus uh, a watch where the penny stock could vary significantly, you know, and constantly, like potentially even drop to zero or disappear, yeah, right? Yeah. Like and disappear versus the watch always has an asset just like real estate. So it's no different than, you know, trading homes, except that there is such little information out there on watches compared to real estate because so few people are doing it that there was just a better opportunity from a, a exit standpoint of getting higher margins so if you're in the know you know how to buy and most of the people buying are not in the know so you always have high sales so you don't have data points similar to real estate or anything else which makes it a very home run like investment market give me an example of, of a typical uh, buy and a sell what you consider to be average in the market so like to give you an example let's say you walk into a hublot boutique you know and you get excited and you see a watch listed for fifteen thousand dollars right that dealer uh has a 40 percent margin on the front end so they'll say like i won't even give you a discount or you know it's super rare super hard but re reality is 40% is what their cost is on buying on the front end. Then they get even more incentives on the back end. So you can pretty much assume that 50% of the money right there on a brand new watch is completely just margin. Uh, in addition to that, even Rolex, the most popular Rolex models that are like impossible to get anywhere, et cetera, have 38% margins. And yet dealers aren't even giving like 5% discounts. You know, they're saying, oh, it's short supply. We're not going to. So 
like once you learn how to actually buy with those discounts and with those margins, and you understand how gray market works and how there's middle buyers, you know, between the Swiss manufacturers and then the actual boutiques and how just everyone is actually like indirectly like screwing everyone in the market, which is really this bizarre like infrastructure, but it, it's just a, a big business. Is this mostly about new watches or used watches? Both. Both. Yeah, both. So it's not like really a question of new or used. It's more about the asset itself. So, so give me an example. So let's say like um, Rolex, okay? Mm -hmm. Or is that a is not is that the, what's the most popular model to be traded in as an investment? I mean, they're they're uh, as an investment more like long term investments. Sure. Audemars Piguet, Patek, Fine, and Richard Mille. Let's, Mill, go, let's, let's you know? go to like a. a um, Richard Mille's an interesting one. Let's go to Richard Mille, right? I'm wearing one now. Yeah. So how long has that company been in business for? Uh, a while, actually. Like, oh. uh, I want to say it's, it's really become popular in the last, like, 20 years. Right, because I did. Yeah. it was not popular. Well, well, it's become popular because of their ties to F1 racing and athletes, which okay. the innovation between each watch was, like, very specific to uh, the theme of the watch. So I'll explain what I mean, like, really quickly for people who are not watch people. So a lot of, like, F1, for example, like, racing, you know, has a lot of, like, impact or, like, tennis players players they have impact on their Nadal wrist it. yeah like when meaning when they hit a racket you know there's a lot of impact on their wrist so a lot of watches would break the movements would get you know destroyed etc and so the way the richard mills kind of came into the market was really by the idea of like having these demonstrations with like tennis players really wearing their watches while playing right and no damage to them so they would make a watch just for the kind of that art and it would make it so limited and exclusive, which we've seen this in the investment game. dollars for a Right, pocket. and like yeah. 10 of them made, et cetera. And, and as a result of that, the engineering, you know, kind of met the, the innovation, you know, and then that really became the forefront of the watchmaking. I mean, every watch, even this one, you'll see there's like a curved glass or there's elements of this that make it unique to, to just what the theme of this particular watch is. All right, guys, time for a new sponsor, Magic Spoon. You're going to love this. All you adults who missed the days of when you could have those wildly delicious sugar cereals that really weren't that good for you. Well, guess what? Imagine you could have all those same cereals now, but they were actually in healthy forms. Things like, you know, the cocoa-based, the fruity-based, all, I don't want to name the brands, but you know what they are. This company, Magic Spoon, has cracked the code for taking those things that we loved as kids and giving them to you now in a healthy form that you can consume and feel good about as an adult. Bottom line. So here's what you do. I want you to go to magicspoon.com slash wolf. You grab your variety pack today. You try it, okay? Be sure to use that promo code wolf at checkout to get free shipping. Okay, and by the way, they're so confident in their product. If you don't love this stuff, 100% happiness guarantee. They'll refund your money if you don't like the product. No questions asked. Again, that's magicspoon.com slash wolf. Again, use that promo code to get free shipping. Try this. Believe me, you will love it. It's really good. All right, guys, one of my favorite sponsors here. Oracle NetSuite. Listen, if you're in business or you're a CFO running a company as a CEO, you know that if you're not on top of your numbers, they are on top of you. The problem is that we use all these different plugins and different types of programs that are supposed to interface on the computer. They never do it the right way. They're expensive. That's why Oracle, one of the best companies out there, Larry Ellison, the coolest dude, super wealthy, 
just a legend in, in Silicon Valley, has this company, Oracle NetSuite, that has solved this problem. One stop for all of your reporting and financial needs in-house. Gives you all thumbs at your fingertips. It works perfectly, cost-effective. It's just awesome all the way around. And right now, here's the deal. You go to their website right now, netsuite.com slash wolf. You get a free guide, seven key strategies to growing your profits from a man and a company that knows what they're doing. All right, you got to check this out. I'm telling you, just trust me. If you're using a whole bunch of different programs, I mean, computer programs that don't talk to each other that well, watch what happens. How much more easy, elegant, and cost-effective it is when you got one that does everything. Check it out. Again, netsuite.com slash wolf. Get that free guide. Seven ways to grow your best business, seven strategies. Believe me, you'll be glad you did. So what would a Richard, what's the price range of Richard Mille watches that you would typically see traded around, not in, in reality? Right, in so the the most of the watches are somewhere between 100 to 250. Like that's the core of the watches. There is always, the, of course, the million dollar ones too, but those aren't like typical investments. So the majority of those now are going for above market. So meaning you're buying them new for like 120, you can't even get them. So the used market's going 170, 160, 140. You know, it's just, some of it is hype, some of it is just rarity. Uh, and the fact that you just can't get them. And then the other side of it is that as someone who's doing investment though, I'm not paying retail, right? So I have my own resources to be able to buy below retail up to 20%. So as a result of that, I'm able to not only play that margin, but also the high margin above that. And as long as you understand kind of where the values are going based on the rarity and the scarcity of the models, you can advise a pretty stable first investment strategy, but in addition to that, you can also add a buy-sell strategy. If someone wanted to wear the watch, let's say you were a customer of the watch and you wanted to do so without losing money on the watch, you would say like, hey, I really want a richer mill, but 100,000 is a lot of money to put in a watch. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or not. A lot of people that don't know the market go, well, I don't know if I wanna spend 100, what if I lose it? What if something happens? So if you wanted that strategy to, I wanna get out of it, making sure I don't lose money, then you could technically wear a watch for free or make a couple of bucks when you get out. So either ways, as a user or as a collector, there's still leverage. So tell me, how, what's, tell me the system. Let's get specific here. How does someone go out and buy watches cheaply? How does that process start? Well, it's not about just, so it's not about just cheaply, right? It's about knowing which cool. models to buy. Okay, when I say cheap, I mean I mean at a at, at below at a price where they can like turn around and make so a profit of, yeah. as a trade. And, and what's the average hold time? On okay, that? so it so if we're looking at richer specifically or all no, watches, okay, if yeah, we're talking about watch trading in general, watch yeah, watch trading in general, it's just basically understanding the supply and demand of each brand and really the scarcity of how many people are looking for that brand at any given time. All right, well, you forced me to get specific, so okay. I'm going to force you to get that's specific. Fine. That's fine. <laughs> you, you're giving me very general. No, stuff. no, no. Okay, I want to hear so real stuff. Right. So let's just use it. Let's use it for the way basically someone that doesn't know anything about watches can kind of know yeah. which watches to go after. Sure. Fair enough. So the way I would do it is I'd look on a basic tool as one of the tools we use is eBay as an example. So eBay is a huge marketplace for watch trading. A lot of people don't know that. Okay. So you can literally go on eBay and type in a general term like Panerai, Richard Mill, Patek, or Rolex, and you'll immediately see hundreds, if not thousands, of listings of those watches. You can also then uh, scrutinize them based on the most popular listings, the ones that are getting the most hits, the most views. So right there, within just one of the thousands of platforms you can use, you just have this amazing bird's eye view of like who's buying what and what's being clicked on and what's and being watched. they're real or fraudulent or, or fake. So in our business, we talk about buying the seller 
because in our business, the day you sell a fake watch is the last day you're in business, you know, meaning so you're always accountable for your inventory. And so usually if you have reputable sellers, which you can see on eBay, since we're using that example, is you have the feedback system, of course, and you can see previous sales they've done. You can also Google the people selling the watches. So you can understand the baseline of first, who is selling the watch, and then two, which watches are most popular. Mm -hmm. So that's the first step in kind of getting acquainted with different brands and different models of each brand, because there's so many models and so many uh, different brands that people get confused about where to get started, right? Yeah. So, so that's kind of the core of the the beginning so it of searching. On eBay. Well, it's just one of the places you can start since you wanted very specific, okay. you know, strategies. So you can do that. Is and that kind the of, best one? I like eBay as a whole because one of the best ways to buy watches cheap is to buy directly from end users and not dealers. Because obviously we understand that anytime you're buying fish right. from a fisherman, then obviously the fisherman is to eat, right? So right. he doesn't like fish either. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you couldn't help yourself. I know. Hey, yeah. I got some fish. Exactly. So basically the point is you want to buy watches from end users who, who lack the ability to sell them because right. they don't sure. know and they don't want to go to a dealer. Makes perfect sense. So there's that small- So people, so these are like average people who bought watches, maybe have a liquidity crisis and want to sell Exactly, and need money. And so-, and, so how, and then how do you know that they're not, so those people are going to be one-time sellers, so how would you know that they're selling something real? So there is there are a couple of ways to do that. First off, there's paperwork that goes with the watches. And once you get good at the one, not always needing paperwork, but once you get good at the watch game, you understand how to read, uh, first off, what is a real watch. Most of these, like for example, this watch has a skeleton side, so it's easy to see the movement inside and ah. to see the jewels, et cetera. And not all watches do. Sure. But you have to have some basic knowledge of what the watches look like. And okay. you can use, if you don't own anything, like we teach in our training, you can go and literally use Google images, you know, from the core websites to identify watches and actually look at them face to face, right? Okay. In addition to that, also the seller does matter even if he's not a watch seller mm -hmm. because people that are selling 15, 20, 30,000 watches on eBay also have sold usually previous things on eBay. You know, so I would not recommend someone goes and buy something from a one-time seller who's never sold anything who's located in China, you know, and then try to buy a watch from that guy just because the deal's good, right? Sure. So as much as you have to buy from the right seller, you have to be willing to pay a little bit more to get it from a person that's worth, you know, actually transacting with, right? Because sure, sure, the, the headache's not worth it otherwise. 100%. So once you do that and you actually get through the, the idea of you've done your due diligence on the seller, on the watch, on the paperwork, if there is paperwork involved, et cetera, then basically it becomes a money transaction of making sure you're wiring the right person. Usually people exchange IDs, et cetera, depending on the dollar amount involved. In some cases, you can even buy directly on eBay where you have the eBay protection, you know, even there specifically helping you like, hey, if something goes wrong, you know, we'll kind of meeting. Is that common it. though? Is that? Uh, if you're doing your due diligence, very few times you really have issues. But okay. is it possible that, you know, someone pulls a fast one and sends you a perfect photo and everything is correct and yet somehow still sells you some garbage? Absolutely. Is there any recourse with like with money going into escrow or no? It just, you've got to. There are tools like that on the, on the internet, like Chrono24 is a website where you have escrow type. Uh, capacity to do that. You have StockX is another place where people send their watches in and the guy sends the money and then Would there's Would you recommend change. that or no? Mm, not not really, not necessarily. Okay. I think, I mean, it all depends on the game or the level of the game you play. Sure. At, you know? So what's like, a, uh, for the person that just that likes it, I'm intrieged by it actually. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people are because no, no. watches are cool. You know? Yeah, why yeah. not, right? Um, so what what would be the price range for like a first time investor that wants to get into this market? What would you recommend starting? Like, would you start with like a five thousand dollar watch, a three thousand dollar watch, or ten? Right. Is there so, sort of like you know? Of course. So my my thing is, if you're trying to flip a watch, meaning you want to make money, then usually you can start as low as two thousand dollars, and the margins are anywhere from fifteen percent to twenty five percent. Okay. And that's from the two thousand to ten thousand dollar range, which is pretty. 
easy, you know, and anybody can play in that range. And then if you really want to make like good money and you enjoy wearing watches, then I usually recommend playing in the ten to thirty thousand dollar range because there's still enough of a motion in that range where the watches are trading hands fairly easily and the margins then can go as high as thirty five percent, which is really, really good. Now if you buy correctly, then you also have larger margin for error with those, you know, meaning like if you bought a little bit too high, you're not in that position where you're like, oh, I'm lost position. You just lost potential profits. Sure. You didn't lose the actual Makes asset, sense. you know? Yep. So so in that, for that reason, I like playing that range personally, but also because most of my day-to-day watches are usually 10 to 30,000. Right? Right. That's what I like to wear. So I usually tell people when they want to start in this business, the best Why place would to you start. Like? Yeah, right. right, like buy something you would like. So even if you don't sell it overnight, you're never in a place where you're like, oh my God, I got to get rid of this. I hate this thing. It's just sitting in my vault and I'm looking at it. You know. So if you're wearing it anyways, you're like, well, I'll just wear it till someone pays me for it. You know. And I think that's the best strategy to get started and into the watch game without hurting yourself too much. I like that, right? And is there people doing this for a living or no? Time. Big yep. time. I mean, in our community alone, we have now about 7,000 members uh, doing this. And I would say about 50% of them are like full-time watch traders. And what's the what's the top earner in this field make? Uh, right now in our community doing this, like that we've trained mm-hmm. over a million a year. Over a million dollars a year. Like in profit, not in, like, yeah, in, in their pocket. Okay. And they mainly trade Rolex, Patek, and... Those and watches. Rolex, Rolex, Patek, Patek Panerai, a- Omega, Adamars, Paget. Yeah, Adamars is harder. It's more of a like collector-based market, so mm-hmm. it's the volumes less. So you need you need markets where there's high volume to right. drive transactions. So Rolex, you know? Patek. Yeah, Rolex, Patek, Panerai, Panerai Omega, and Omega do well. Omega is sort of a lower. Brand they are, but there's yeah, but they are, but there's a lot of people that yet still want Omega. So there's more of a mass market appeal, right? You only have so many people buying. 200K Richard Mills, you know, just like you have so many people buying Ferraris, you know, in general, but you have a lot more people buying Maseratis because they're more sure. sustainable and, you know, and understandable to a common audience. Okay. Um, so you got started in this how? So in, I was actually a banker when I was 18 years old. I was the youngest bank manager in the U.S. Okay. I was actually doing like that in Washington, D.C. Banker, like a retail bank? Yeah, like a retail banker, like the boring guy you go visit for your deposits and loans and stuff. Got it. Uh, and then at 23, I became an executive VP for uh, the same bank. And then at 25, I got fired. Mm-hmm. So when I got fired, uh, I tried to reinvent myself into like what I wanted to what do. What year was that? Uh, that was in 2008, I want to say. So was it fired because of the whole downturn in the bank? Well, no, I actually got fired because I was a prick. I used to like drive my Lamborghini and like park it over like two handicapped spots, tell my boss to go fuck himself. It was like just a, like, yeah, I was just that guy. Like, and I think part of it was like, I How was- How you have a Lamborghini as a bank manager? They don't make a lot of money as a Well, that's, so I was doing real estate on the side and I also was really good with alternative assets. So even the exotic cars, while you think it's like, well, it's so expensive, I wasn't losing any money owning a Lamborghini. So it wasn't costing me anything. So, so at that point, you uh, so you one of those guys that didn't have any money but drove a Lamborghini. <laughs> no, I had money, but I wasn't rich per se. Like okay. you know, so I wasn't financially. So, well, you free. were driving a Lamborghini because you were using it. As, you My know. own strategy at the time, and I wasn't. I didn't yeah. have the money to be like, hey, I bought a cash. I don't care. But right. at the same I time, I get it. I had two grand a month to spend on a car that I wasn't. And you were also saying that you were you were like sort of young and showing off a bit. Right, and, of course. And, and yeah. you got fired, and that's why they fired you. Basically, you think? Well, I think they fired me because yeah, I was, might fire you if you did that. Like it, it was kind of bad. I guess. Well, you know, it looked bad, but also I think they, I was really highly paid for what I did. I had a couple of strategies that I used to get my salary like way up there. And the bank was going through a transition where it was being sold off 
And I think just, I was just a liability more than I was okay. an asset. Right. Anyway, so you yeah. lost your job there, yep. right? And that was probably the best thing that ever happened to you, right? No, it actually wasn't. You know what it did? It just shifted my mindset from thinking that I mattered because of the money I made to understanding that I, one of the things that happened when I got fired that was a really big blow to me wasn't the money they took away from me because I already had enough money saved to be okay. So I wasn't really afraid of the money they took salary-wise. Mm -hmm. I was afraid of the fact that I wasn't gonna be able to be a banker anymore because they took a job that no one else was gonna give me without a degree. All right, guys, this is one of my favorites, Manscaped, you know, below the belt grooming. Listen, the products are awesome. And they're made for like, you know, you want to trim your pubic hairs, you want to shave a few, man. It's everything for a man. I really like their products. I swear to God, I travel with their products, all right? And I use them because they're good. They're ergonomically correct for ball trimming and under the shaft trimming, all that. Man. No, seriously, or else you get with the wrong one, you know, you might cut the family jewels off. You don't want that to happen. Anyway, let me give you the details here. Manscaped.com. All right. Use the code WOLF. Not only will you get 20% off, but you'll also get free shipping. 20% off and free shipping. Manscaped.com. You look good. You keep your balls in the sack where they belong, not on the floor because you fucking cut them off. <laughs> That's a terrible thought, right? But it's just not just for that. It's for everything. They got razors. They got clippers, trimmers. Very cool stuff, all right? And they're multi-purpose. Well, you can use them for a lot of different things, all right? Again, manscaped.com. Code is WOLF. 20% off. Free shipping. You'll be glad you did this. When I said to you that it was it was probably the best thing ever happened to you, what I was alluding to is that that type of bank manager mm -hmm. is is not a high paid job, is it? Right. Well, I wasn't a bank manager when I got fired. I'm saying so you start you start off as a bank bank member. That that whole aspect of banking is not correct. There's not right. There's no money. There's no real. Couldn't even make more than a hundred grand. Yeah. All right. So there's no money. So what I'm saying is the best thing ever happens. I mean, like that's not to me not a path to wealth. I think what it did is it forced you to probably shift your perspective. It may become a better person as well. Yeah. But also, but you know, you were forced now to say, okay, well, I'm out of a job. What do I do next? That sort of that is that what took you into this current line of work you're in now, mentoring people or no? No, what I wasn't next? really relevant to that. So okay. I went into the exotic car market after because I loved cars and I loved watches and stuff. And so when I got fired, I started my company, VIP Motoring, which was then helping first That's off. what I'm saying. You were forced to start a company. Yeah, via 100%. Right, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I had a car wash business on the side while I was a banker, and that turned into a tuning studio where I was just tuning cars. Okay. And then as a result of that, I needed to make more income since now I had lost my income from the bank. So I decided at that point to start kind of investing in automotive uh, and watches. Okay. So that's kind of what gave birth to that system back then. So outside of that, like just growing through that system and actually doing really well during the downturn, because we were able to buy assets very cheap, uh, we kind of grew through that. And then as I kind of got started making money again to a point where I was like super comfortable now, uh, I started realizing that I wanted to, like, I just got bored of it. I was like, I'm making all this money. I have better cars. I have a better house. Define, a define it. What's in your mind? I'm not going to actually be specific exactly, but what do you consider back at the time like a lot of money? What was a lot of money to you back then? Well, meaning at the time, if I, I had like two and a half million dollars. and I, like, What were you earning in terms of a, a income? Like each, about half a million. Okay. A year. So, I mean, I was comfortable and I had no expenses. And you, I and, didn't have family. I didn't right. have anything. So... That was a lot of money for me, you know what I mean, at the, the time. The other days. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no expenses and everything. And remember, I mean, most people, when they have houses, cars, you know, like expenses, they look at their expenses as, look, I have, a, I have a car that cost me this much. I have watches. I have this lifestyle. Well, my lifestyle was always free. 
Because remember, I was this guy that was literally managing my own luxury assets. So I wasn't really spending any money. My only cost of living was food, like restaurants, and basically travel and my house. And there was nothing else. And even real estate wasn't really a, an expense because it was always a, an asset in terms of I was buying houses that were going to like trend in the right direction anyway. So I wasn't buying houses I wanted. I was buying the houses that would leverage the money again to continue growing. So I really had no expenses. When I say I like made half a million dollars, it's like saying you make literally, you know, 50, 60K a month and you have nothing to do with it. You know, meaning it's straight going in your pocket. So it was a lot of money to me because as a single person that only took care of his mother and had all of this, you know, extra leverage to not pay for the Ferraris and Lamborghinis, et cetera, it just, it was very, very comfortable. Maybe too comfortable, you know, but it got me to a state where I started realizing that like, I, I just wasn't happy just being known for having cars and watches and things like that. Where were you living at the time? In Virginia, in Northern Virginia, like in near Washington, D.C. Okay. And I was the guy that would show up at the club with the, you know, Lamborghini and everybody would like open the doors and like do that. And I started realizing that everybody knew me for my cars, but nobody knew me for me. Right. And so that started bothering me a lot. I was like, if I die tomorrow, I'm only as good as the next guy that shows up with a better car, you know, because then someone's going to outdo me. So I started really rethinking why I was, what I wanted to happen out of my life. And the one thing that really was a theme in my life entirely was mentorship. I had, like the reason I was super successful in banking in my investment company and everything else was always because I was really good at teaching and training people. So I started realizing that maybe I had this gift for helping people. And so I started developing it, you know, and I didn't know uh, much about how I was gonna do that. All I knew is that I wanted to share kind of like my rules for not just success, but like leadership and sales and basic things that had led me to where I was. And so I started writing a free blog that was called Secret Consulting at the time, just writing like my thoughts. And, and a little bit later, I realized people were reading it and I realized there was a real opportunity to like impact more people. Mm -hmm. So I started, like I rebranded it on their Secret Entourage. And I realized that at the time, there were nobody doing podcasts, these things. This was like 2009 when we really like got started with just the surface of it. Nobody was doing podcasts. Nobody was doing interviews. You know, YouTube wasn't hot for like one-to-one -one interviews like this. So I decided to go after all my friends who had exotic cars because I was part of these large groups of people with Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And I was like, hey, why don't you tell me what you did for a living and how you do it? Right. And maybe I'll share the stories of people who have... Cool cars, you know, because kids are always like the first thing they ask me, like, what do you do, man? You're young, you know, everything, what, what's going on? So it would get to me. So I was like, well, they want to know. So we'll go out there and we'll just do these stories and very basic like interviews and just talk to normal people, not celebrities, about how they did it is that they got their car. What did they do for a living? And so that got more and more popular and that gave birth to the Secret Entourage movement, uh, which became this place where now to date I've interviewed over 400 like really well-known entrepreneurs in addition to other people who are not as well-known, but super successful. Right. And I verified their success. That's one of the key things that we did that made us different was a lot of times people would market anybody, JV stuff, you know, et cetera. And we never did that. Mm. Like it was just about like honest story of somebody for like 30 minutes to an hour and what they had to share. Not, we wouldn't allow anybody to promo anything. We wouldn't allow them to sell anything. It was just- right. It was just Strategy. like, you want to, yeah, it was just like, hey, you want to share something about how you did it? And we would then broadcast that through all these channels and our own membership network. And membership was so cheap, it was like $100 to join for a lifetime. So right. it gave access to everybody. Right. You know, it wasn't like some expensive, sure. like monthly membership fee or anything. Right. So, and that gave me kind of like the knowledge to be in the online market. A lot of my friends even wondered why I would do that when I was making so much money in the online, like in the offline world. They were like, why would you do that online? I think there's a, a value 
to just like giving value to people. Right. In other yeah. words, there's a huge value. And like, um, you know, my friends like Dan Fleischman, I mentioned mm-hmm. when, when uh, you interviewed me, is a guy who just, his, he makes, he's like some unspoken algorithm he's mm-hmm. probably running in the background in his own mind of like just by helping other people connect and advising and so forth. What, sh- what shakes out of that at the end of the day can be a very, very lucrative 100%, business. Yeah. And also rewarding because you're helping a lot of people along mm-hmm. the way, right? Very rewarding, and I like doing it a lot. So, so I how did it, so? What was the was there a certain moment, like, where you're like, wow, you know, I kind of arrived now. Like, I feel like I was once known for being like the guy who, you know, the cheesy guy who drives up mm-hmm. in the with the car, and and then you kind of probably, I'd probably look back, and then it was fun. I bet. Yeah, very fun. Why not? Right? I don't, I, yeah, you probably yeah. you know got laid like crazy, All the time. <laughs> ultra hot chicks, right? Okay, Super fun. Which is nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I would say yeah. right, nothing wrong. Nothing with that, wrong. Okay? With that. <laughs> when you're young, now you know it's, you gotta be more sedate, right? You know, especially in the Me Too era, right? Now you get destroyed, <laughs> right? You know, but who am I to say? I am here to say it's my my fucking podcast. I'll do whatever I want, right? But no, my point is that was there a certain moment where you're like, you know, wow, um, I'm not that guy anymore. Like, I'm really making a dent in the universe, in my own universe at least, and uh, love what I'm doing. Is there something? Was there a turning point when you said, "Damn, I'm I'm seeing like some real runway here," or just a slow burn the whole way? Either one. Yeah, you know? I mean, I mean, look for me, like the online thing was just the beginning, right? It was like. I, I knew being online was just a way to reach people. You know, Instagram started blowing up. It was good, you know, for just all of this spreading the wealth of knowledge to people. It just helped a lot. But one of the things that really happened is I've never read a book in my life. I hate reading. So I just, that never like connected with me. And so- You're Ty Lopez, you get along really well. I, well, yeah. <laughs> so I hated reading and I couldn't ever finish a book. And one of the key things was I was writing books because I was writing all these blogs and I started writing books and I didn't know, I've never read a book. So I really didn't know how to write books. And so I started writing and I wrote 10 like small eBooks that were doing okay, but you know, they were trying to drive some revenue to the site and help kind of sustain the model. But then I started really realizing that what the world needed wasn't just for me to share kind of what's made me successful, but I was like, maybe it's to share who I am with people, like Mm -hmm. in what's in my head that allows me to do what I do. So I brought together a theory called Third Circle Theory, which became my uh, best-selling and biggest book to date. So it sold over a million copies since its inception in 2013, and it was self-published, which was a big deal. So doing and, that- and you sell it on, so it was self-published, sold mm-hmm. how? Was it, was it not free? Amazon, e-book? anywhere. No, free it's not free. Much? No, it's uh, 20 bucks. 20 bucks? Yeah, 20 bucks. Okay. So it was an expensive book, per se. For and you sold a million at $20? Yeah. Well, we sold some at like $12 at launch, and now as high as $29, some with a course at $100. Great. So it did really good, but really that book- That's a lot. Look, 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 that's not good. That in the book world, that no, is a the book massive, world, good. right? It's very, it's like very a good. massive. Right. Yes. No, it's a massive amount of books. Like massive. I agree. Yeah. So it's not just like I want to give you credit for that. A million copies is more than like ninety-eight percent of the books Correct. out there yeah. in the world. Ninety-nine point nine percent. And having ten like failed eBooks before, you know, like that really didn't make any dent or anything. Really so helped. You was know? the book ever on the bestseller list? On the New York Times no. and stuff? No. No, it was never published, so it ended up between Amazon. Amazon though. And we sold. Well, one of the things was originally I got approached by a publisher to move the book, you know, to actually sell the book. But we saw that the amount of money they were going to take out of the equation just didn't make sense. So we wanted the book to really support the site and our mission. I think the problem with with that. I know firsthand, this is, my books are all published mm-hmm. by publishers, is that you can't get your own fucking book to give away to people. Right. A lot of times, like a book would be a great thing you want to give away mm-hmm. as a lead generator. 
Right, which exactly. A lot of right. people it makes it do. very hard. Yeah. And if you're published, you got to buy your own book right. back for like five dollars. So there were just so many like. So they do a lot of that. You do the lead because a great lead. We do a lot of lead gen, but we don't count those as sales, right? Right. Because if but we still do it's a great lead gen using the book, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially because the feedback was so good on the book, meaning right. people were like really. What's the concept of the book? The concept is that every human, every human person evolves through their eyes more than anything else. And so my thing was that every human person goes through three basic components of life or is supposed to either ways, even if they don't get there. And it's the mastery of circumstance, the mastery of society and the mastery of life. So I think if I break down every human being, they fit into one of these circles. You mean example? First one, massive circumstance? Like people that can't get over who they are or where they live or always find failure or victimized mentality typically fit in the first circle. People who just can't overcome their circumstance, wherever they're born into, whatever they do, the psychology of who they are, they just can't overcome that. So they're, they're stuck in that bubble. And then there's people who reject society, who don't understand how society works, aren't willing to look at money as leverage, and they're looking at everything as kind of living true life, right? And those people are stuck in the second circle. And then there's some people that get past these two and understand that life and society are two different things. That money is just leverage. It's not just a measure of life, but a measure of success in society, not outside of society. And so they are able to progress past that stage and actually find meaning to their life and find true happiness based on the progress they make towards that meaning rather than just like I'm making a lot of money, so I'm going to be happy. So I kind of reflected on my own life and my own progression and all the people I've helped through, sure. through my time and kind of deciphered that they were stuck in these three. There were people that would, you know, advance from the first to the third. People that would advance, get stuck in the first or in the second, et cetera. And so I created this entire uh, theory around how people evolve and that the major number one component of how we progress through life is by observing and paying attention to what's happening. So it was ultimately the guide to growing a heightened sense of self-awareness, sure. not just awareness, which a lot of people use in a common kind of word together. They go, oh, you have awareness. And other people go, oh, you have self-awareness. But those are two completely different things. Right? So the title book again is The Third Circle, Circle Theory. And yeah. you can get it, everyone, you can get it right now on? Amazon or anywhere else books are sold. You can actually buy it in stores too, like Barnes & Nobles and everything. Okay. Yeah. Are there really bookstores left? Yeah, I know they suck. <laughs> they don't attribute to a lot of sales. But <laughs> I bet, right? Yeah, but they're there. Just just because, in case, you know. Got it, right. And when did you write the book? Uh, 2013 was the release. I wrote it in 2012. Like, And was it an instant, huge success straight no, away? It or, took a or year took, and a half or, for, it, for it to really pick up. And was there something, was there anything that, there was there some sort of interview you did or so how did it pick up? No, I think one of the big differences from before was that, I, like I said, I was always writing about things that I, I've learned from other people. Sure. And for once I was writing about something that I wanted to bring to the world, which right. was very different. And then there were a lot of uh, really affluent business people who, uh, right, like read the book. Actually, what's funny is that Grant read the book. Uh, other people, like Andy Frazella, read the book. So they and but how they, did it become such a huge success? Well, was there a strategy? They shared it. No, was there a marketing strategy? strategy? No, I that think just, it went viral based on the fact that the actual content of the book helped people so much, which was really good for me because that's what I. So people to set were up. just promoting it, saying, "Hey, this is a must read." Like, yeah, exactly. Like, and we still get that to this day, even awesome. though I have other books past that. What, that well, what else? To, what, so, uh, well, I wrote a sequel to that called Radius, which stands for Reaching Across Different Industries, Uncovering Solutions. Uh, so that's like the whole good acronym. Yeah, it's yeah. the whole mapping of how we use third circle theory, uh, observation and awareness to uh, get into creating sustainable long term business models that focus right. on recycling customers and resources to continuously just build new verticals without actually having to put out any large money and so on and so forth. So, so what have you? So it seems like you've learned a lot 
yourself from your journey, yeah, 100%, right? And that's what I share in the book. So it comes what do you what do you experience. think that you still have to learn? You think there's a, is there a part of you right now? You're saying, you know, I've kind of got it all figured out. Or I still um, you still struggle with some aspects of your own, you know, growth as uh, both a business person and individually, or you think you kind of got it figured out right now? Uh, I mean, I don't think I, I don't think I've str- I'm struggling with any aspect of it. I think everything is a journey and it's progressive. I don't think anything is like do or die. You know, like you made yeah, it or you didn't is make anything it. You feel like that, you know. I I know there's this bigger. I've always I'm, I think I I I'm always speaking for myself from my map of the world. I'm always part of my strategy for success is to not allow myself to become complacent with where I'm at and say there's always some higher level. I I always strive to mm-hmm. for self improvement and not just about money. Just about, right, of about you know what I'm saying. I just it's just me. I mean, so I was wondering if you were like that or you just sort of because not everyone's like some people are just content. No, I'm I'm always striving for more, but striving more from a personal development standpoint of like getting to know myself better yeah, and learning better ways to bring my skills to the world, not necessarily from a monetized standpoint. I also think of it from a business standpoint. I learned a lot every year. You know, new things are happening. I'm very adaptive in my thought process. So. You married? I was divorced. Kids? I should, no, no, thankfully. Not, not yet. At some point, maybe. <laughs> How old are you? Uh, 37. Okay. Yeah. So married for three years, dated for 10 total. So, you know, just a long time. Single but, now? Or you have a girlfriend? Yeah, single. With a girlfriend, but. Uh, or two, well, you have a girlfriend. Or three. <laughs> 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 Let's hear the truth. Come on. <laughs> trying to, I'm trying to get you like, you have a lot of females on the Watch the Podcast. Well, just. Where do you, you know. see? He's in Palm, Palm Beach. <laughs> <laughs> Wealthy, good-looking dude, thirty-seven years old, no children yet. I'll be that's like your a, mother. You, know, I've you learned, have to meet this guy. I've learned that like that's a place. kicker for women when you don't have a kid. They they you, like, like it they like it. Like, no, they oh, like really? it a lot. Yeah, because they're like, oh, well, I have a shot at the kid thing. You know, like they don't have to deal with someone else's kid. I've always found that to be like interesting. <laughs> <laughs> when you get to my age, when the kids are already growing, you're like, they're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't kid. matter either. Yeah, because <laughs> at that point, they don't have to be like the the whole stepmom thing. But yeah, what do you say to? all the people are watching this who are in their 20s. Let's say the 20s, 30s, right? It's a big, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I, don't, I don't mean to discard the rest of you, but I'm saying, but like the kids are just getting out of school or maybe not even gone to college. I don't think it's necessary anymore, but what is the, the, the biggest advice that you would give to someone, you know, in terms of your strategies and teachings of how to really, I don't want to use the word hack, but what's the, you know, the kind of quickest path you think to someone really achieving success in the world right now? Well, I think success is subjective, right? Everybody wants their own learner. But let's use money as a good example for success because it's, like I always said, it's the next term, right? Yeah. Meaning it's necessary before you can use the leverage to do whatever else you want. And I think for, for me, the, the biggest advice I give younger people is always what they do is they chase, they look for ways to make money. Mm. Everybody wants to make money. Mm. Everybody's always like, what do I do to make the most money? How do I become financially free, et cetera? What they're not asking is what do I want to be doing to then figure out how to monetize it instead? So instead of just asking, what do I need to do to make money? Is like, what am I really good at? What do I want to be bringing to the world? And then how do I figure out how to monetize that? Okay. And so it's this shift in thinking about just making money versus learning how what you do can make money. Do you think it's more, not more important, say, you think it's a more um, predictable strategy or you know, uh, outcome of success to do what you love doing or do what you're good at doing? Good at doing. Good at doing. Yeah, good at doing. I don't think I don't think it's a matter of I don't think you need to start thinking about what you love doing. And I think that's the problem. Everybody 
cares about their feelings, right? Always about like what's important. Like I want to love what I do. I want to live a happy life. But those things don't mean shit. I agree. The same way that someone says, I want to be rich. That doesn't mean shit. That's not a plan, right? Mm -hmm. Like someone goes to me, oh, you have a car. I want a Lamborghini one day. That doesn't mean shit. That's not, that's the reward, right? That's the end game. Right. Like, so you got to figure out what's the map to get there, right? Like, what are you going to be doing to get the Lamborghini? Not... Not like the Lamborghini is not a path, <laughs> like it's the end, like it's the byproduct of making enough money to buy it. Versus if you say, I want to be, I'm a great cook and I'm really good at cooking, then maybe you want to pursue just being a chef somewhere, you know, and continue that. And as a chef, if you're the best chef in, let's say, California, you're going to have enough money to buy Lamborghini. So that doesn't matter. But what I'm saying is that the end goal and the reward that comes with it should never be the goal. Right. And so what I think young people do is they, they especially with social media, so having opened your eyes to it. Let me stop one. There's two, so there's two separate equations here. One is the idea that you can't look at possessions as sort of like, you know, uh, you know I, I'm, I'm working for this. That comes from hard work and success, the Ferrari, mm-hmm. anything else. What I'm talking about more, and I, and I, you gave me an answer, which I agree with, by the way, was that this idea that, you know, I have to love what I do versus trying to monetize what I'm best at. Correct. Right? And then eventually you can and also do what you want to love right. doing that yeah. you're going to work on as well. So you think, so let's go back to that first part of the equation, which is to do, essentially to focus on what you're, what you naturally are inclined to be great at. You have a much right. great, so what do you see with for most people out there, right? And you mentor a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? A lot. What's the average, Was you, you say you have, is it 20s, 30s, typically, late probably teens? Probably mid, mid-20s to early mid, 30s. Right? That's yeah. probably the biggest yeah. suite, Right. And what are the things that you keep seeing, the patterns that you keep seeing over and over again that lead people to success? And what are the patterns that you see that kind of lead people, I don't want to say failure, but to still learning the lessons that you eventually use to get to well, success? Well, it leads them to what I call the reset, right? The constantly looking for the next thing, the next thing, and it doesn't lead anywhere. So what do you think those, what are those patterns though? What are, what well, it's the one thing, it's commitment, lack of it. Lack of commitment. Yeah, to what they want to do. So they, so when like, they, they kind of they say they want to succeed, but not really to well, right. whatever it takes. So they want to succeed in stock trading, for example. They want to do that. That's their thing. They want to trade stocks. Okay, no problem. That's a that's an okay commitment to make. But then they don't commit. They go try to learn it. They go, I didn't make money in a year because they never were trying to learn how to do it. Uh, they so were now, trying to make stop, money doing stop, it. Stop. So, so now, now we're okay. So that's so that's step. That's the what I was saying. I think on your podcast was that the biggest problem is they don't know what they need to know. Mm-hmm. There's a, a specialized skill typically for everything that you want to do. If you want to be a stock trader, then guess what? You need to learn how to trade stocks. stocks correct. You, and yeah. a lot of people skip that. And well, they, they don't want to do that. They don't, well, they, well, let's say they really want, they, they'll dabble in it, mm-hmm. but that's a, a more of an in-depth process than one might might think. And it's not just for stock trading. Basically anything. There are experts well, in dabbles, the same right? Thing. They're, not, they're not excited about learning the process. They're they excited about money. the money, yeah. the result aspect. Right. It's the right. same thing as saying, I'm going to trade stocks till I buy a Lamborghini, right. which isn't the goal. This right. is right. the point. You know, versus I'm going to become the best stock trader right. in my network of people. As a result of that, I'll end up- I'll also end up with the same It's a shift form. in perspective. It's just a mindset. It's like almost your own little game you play yourself of not trying to tie the activity directly to the outcome of the, re- the reward, but learning it just for the sake of learning. Right, because a reward be great won't at what come, you're doing. Yeah, and you see, the, the problem is people are in this mindset, like in their job, where they're like, I'm trading time for money. So even when they go start their own business, they go, well, I've traded 20 hours. I've made no money. Right. I've traded six months. I've made no money. I've traded one year. I've made like a lot less money than I made in my old job. So therefore, 
this is a bad investment for me, right? Like to, to be doing this versus they don't understand that in your own business, it doesn't work like in a company where a company is taking the risk and saying, while you learn, I'm gonna pay you something. And while you're getting good at this, I'm gonna pay you something. And when you're best at it and you're bored, I'm gonna promote you and you're gonna keep doing this thing and I'm gonna limit your growth versus in your own company, you might have two, three, four years sure. of not really making your worth worth the money, but- yeah. You're laying the foundation. Right, but what the they don't realize is that the investment you're earning internally of the knowledge and everything that comes with it is what's gonna make you get a lot more money four, five, six years down the road. And so they don't look at it that way. They look at it as, I'm just not making enough money. And that comes from the social media issue of comparing yourself to other people. And I think that's one of the biggest flaws of this generation is they compare themselves to other young people who are presumingly well, making more money, faking, you know, whatever. Right, they're right, posting exactly. some exaggerated or, right, right. or some, you know, anyone could take eight photos Correct. a day and make themselves look like they're living Correct. life Correct, but if, if, if people competed with themselves instead and gave themselves a reasonable timeline of commitment to learning the trade, then it would realize that eventually the money follows the better they get at the trade, right. but they don't do that. Do you look at any specific industries as the most surefire paths to wealth for someone in their 20s or 30s? For example, and I know you teach alternative investments, watches, cars. Mm -hmm. So would you recommend that? Or you think that's just, do you do that in terms of the recommendation, this is what you should do, or that's just an option, but you think there's other things that you don't teach that might be even better? No, I mean, I don't, I always say I teach what I do and what I know how to do. So I can't teach someone like, let's say to be a commercial real estate guy when that's not what I do, right? Even if I've had, I've had success in residential real estate to some extent, not enough to say, hey, sure. there's a pattern here and I've been really great I at it. And I want to show you what I do. And yeah, and listen, I could I could milk that and say, look, I've done this. I probably have better results than a like lot of people. Like most people do. Right, <laughs> and I could make money off of that, but I choose to only teach by experience because I'm not a marketer. I'm I, a guess, I guess my question is this. In other words, like one of the things that I have not done ever mm-hmm. is I've never biz opt. I never turn what I do into a biz op. And I've turned everything I do yeah, into a biz Yeah, op. so yeah. I've never done that. I've always said to people, listen, I will sh- gladly show you how to make a ton of money at whatever you want to do, but I, I don't hold myself out there as saying, here's a turnkey solution to go into X industry. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's bad. It's an industry ripe with fraud, mm-hmm. by the way, the biz op market is ripe with mm-hmm. fraud of people who have charlatans and you know just separating their money, right? And, I'm, and I know you're not that, but I'm just saying it's, it's problematic. I've never done that because I just, the problem I've always had with it is said, hey, okay, um, you know, if I'm going to teach someone to do what I do, they have to have some real specialized skills. I want to make sure that, you know, you give someone all the tools, they don't succeed. And they're like, well, wait, I didn't succeed. Well, you didn't do the freaking work, right? Yeah, it has right. to, you know, yeah. a lot of the impetus is on those people. So I've never done that. You've done it with both watches and, and cars, right? And tell me what do you see in terms of like the things that you've done right where you know cuz your reputation is good right yeah, you don't have a, you don't have a, like right um but you know i i speak the truth i say there's a lot of shitty oh horrible it's just like, like awful, awful. Yeah. it's an awful space right it's a really bad space yeah so like, why what have you done um that's allow you to sort of, you know, not kind of step on those landmines. And it probably starts not being a greedy motherfucker who's right. looking just to scam people, but deeper than that. So I think first off, A, I care about my reputation. And I think that's the key. So I've always, always been on top of our students, meaning I've never actually done things just for the sake of like, oh, we sold X amount of units and that's good. You know, I actually care and I participate in helping them succeed. I give a lot of value adds that are not money makers. They're time wasters for me. You mean like I'm not making anything? off of it, but it's 
detrimental to their success, right? And super important. And then the other part too is I only teach what I have experience and results in and I continue to trade in. So if I stopped trading watches, I yeah. wouldn't be teaching trading so, watches. So in other words, I think the problem with a lot of business um, opportunities is that they start off by getting you in for a few thousand dollars and then they say, oh, well, if you really want to, how to, how to mm -hmm. buy real estate, then come into our gold circle inner mentorship program for $82,000 and they start, there's an ascension model mm -hmm. aspect of the whole thing. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, again, I can't speak to any specific program that I haven't taken, but I think that in general, I would look at any program as the success of the person teaching it in, in that space prior to teaching it. Meaning like, I think one of the big things is people get zooped into like big numbers really easily. Like we look at companies like today, like we look at the marketing element of it, right? We say, uh, I'll give you a good example, even using my own kind of companies, right? It's easy for me to say, look, I have a $100 million company here. And on the surface, everybody gets excited. They go, oh, it's a big company, you know, like, and so on and so forth. But without context, that doesn't mean shit. Right. Meaning like that could mean like I have a $1 million in my pocket company, right? I, I've I mean, heard worse than that. I think the dumbest thing I've ever heard is a gauge because you're, what you're saying is true. What you're saying is $100 million company means nothing if you're making 10 grand. Exactly. And that's what I've, I've, I've heard one worse. That, well, someone once said, oh, I built 3,000 man companies. <laughs> I'm not I'm fucking kidding you. I was like, and how much did you lose? That's a lot of fucking people to feed there. Thousand man companies. I was like, what? Is right. that right? It's, it's brutal, it's but it, but that's what people like. I guess that's what gets people excited. Where the marketer versus teacher comes in versus, right. it's easy for me to use that, right? But I'd rather I always tell people I'd rather own uh, a three million dollar company that makes me two million dollars in my pocket because yeah. it's less management, it's less issues, it's less people. What I'm talking about is the is the business of basically taking people who are success hungry, mm -hmm. who want to live a better life, and essentially offering them. Uh, a biz op, but at the end of the day, the whole thing is really about how much money can you extract from them in learning fees. Right, but but and, it, and, and you see, no, that, that, that's what I see that poisons the market. In yes, general, I agree. Right, well, I agree with that, but I think also I think people poison the market themselves by actually continuing to go into these things with the wrong expectation of themselves. And then that's the net. Well, then the other and then side the other the people keep taking advantage the, of them. Now we're back almost like to the mortgage crisis where like everyone right. was fucking right, responsible, exactly, right. right? People yeah. bought houses they couldn't afford, and they were lured into it by people who could make money. Right, and that, but that goes back. That goes back to my book. A lot of people fall into this lack of ability to get out of their circumstance. Right, so that's a buyer beware type of thing. You're saying so if someone you're saying someone goes into a biz op, right, and they go in with an unhealthy attitude or an exaggerated outlook, um, that like shit, you know, uh, it's a get rich quick scheme or No, that. it's because they go in the biz op with the intention of making money. They don't go in the biz op with the intention of learning the business. And I think that's the biggest issue between the two. When you say I want to like a lot of people come to me and they go, oh I want to do real estate. And I'm like, what kind of real estate? Oh I don't know. I just want to do real estate because everybody I know makes money in real estate. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Okay. The problem is that they're not chasing to learn the game. They're chasing to try to extract some money right. from the game they don't right. understand. Well, obviously, you can't fault when they, that's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make money what you do, of course. No, but, but, they're, but they're not willing to learn the, the process. It's one, what you're saying is that most people would like to sort of, you know, they're, they're expecting, an, so let's say, an, I wouldn't say instant, but a near-term reward, and business is not near-term. Don't so. even look at it that way. That's even, that's very dramatic, and that's true. That's the majority of people, right? Like, everybody yeah. wants instant gratification. That's right. true. But I'm talking about even the simplicity of taking 10 minutes out of your day and saying, look, I want to be in real estate, I'm going to Google 
different types of real estate, commercial versus residential. Specificity, and, get specific on exactly and actually, what at least of understanding like. for yourself, like what does it even mean to be in real estate? You know, what is a wholesaler? Like, what does that even mean? Most people go into it and go, well, this wholesaler told me wholesaling was very lucrative. But I'm wholesaling. like wholesaling properties, you know, like they're like, oh, this is like the real estate thing, which I, well, I'm saying it may be or not. But what I, all I'm saying is that that person that's heard from that person that told them there's a lot of money in it did not even take 10 minutes of their day to go and actually try to investigate what is a wholesaler, except what they investigated is why the program of wholesaling is good or bad for them. Right. And that's the problem. Like they're not interested in learning wholesaling. They're interested in actually just making whatever money they've been told someone else made. How and about the person that, that's some people, I'm sure, right? There are some people though. That's the majority of people. You think it's the majority? Yeah, like, Where they just, like 90%. They know, that's what you, from your, you see people that come to you is they're not really committed. Zero idea. You know how many people come to me and they go mentor me? And I'm like, great, why? Oh, because you're successful. I'm like, sure, why? What makes me successful? Oh, you have all this shit. I'm like, bro, like, really? Like, how do you know I wasn't born into it? You know, how do you know, like, my parents didn't give me a Ferrari at 10? You know, it doesn't matter. Like, how do you like ask someone to mentor you and you haven't even used Google for their name, you know, like to know what they've even done? How do you know I can mentor you if you don't even know I'm in the right industry that you wanna be in? So like you don't, but like the idea of it is that people just want like this, I need you to tell me how do I make 10 grand now? It's like, but that's not how this works. And if I tell you like, you need to go back and like learn this process to know how to become the person to make 10 grand. So you understand leverage, you understand buy sells, you understand, oh, well that, that could take two years. Yeah, like that's, you know, which job did you ever get where the first day you were on the job, they were like, well, we're gonna move you from like 9.25 an hour to like 10,000 a week because what do you think? Cool. What do you think is a fair expectation for someone that's, you know, in that, at, that sort of, you know, someone that's really, you know, successful and willing to work hard? How long do you think it really takes someone to get it? You know, you, I think it takes, the realistic expectation is that you should work in industry three to four years before you actually can learn the path to becoming an expert in it. And I think people just, even if you get, let's say you get lucky and there's some element of luck in terms of like you get some kind of unicorn based setup where something happens, the virality happens or something. There, you, there was some work you did to get there, but let's say that occurs, maybe it happens faster, but that's not a sustainable expectation. So you say three to four years. Yeah, I think at a minimum to at least get enough experience and feedback in that space to know where you stand on the scale of expert versus I suck at this. And can you shorten that with the right mentorship, you think? Yes, maybe two and a half. Okay. But legitimately, I think the expectation that the right the, the mentor is gonna shortcut your entire- And we're just talking entire... an average. Some people right. look very fast. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, but, sure. And then the commitment matters, right? You work every day on this versus you still have your job, you're uncommitted, you're learning on the weekends, you know? I mean, it all depends, and right? what's your opinion on that in terms of, do you, do you, when you see people that are trying to sort of like have one foot in one world and another foot in another world, not just throw all in. Do you think that's a smart strategy or a bad strategy? Hedging your bets or all in one in? All no, in. I think I think it's the commitment to the skill. So if so you're in completely, in. well, unless you're in completely irrelevant industries. So if you're like, I'm in real estate and I'm doing wholesaling, commercial, residential, and I'm kind of like packing, that's fine. But if you're like, look, I'm doing Forex trading, I'm doing stock trading, and now I'm also getting in real estate. What do you think, bad or good? 
Horrible. 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 We agree. Okay. Horrible. Horrible. Like, I think it's probably the most destructive Disgusting. thing. Disgusting. Yeah. Like, yeah, just stupid. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we, we agree yeah. on stuff. So um, I, I found, I used to say to people at Workplace, that if you guys are, are even looking at the help wanted section or, because mm-hmm. it was a different world back then, you know what I'm saying? But it wasn't like you go online, you know, right. if you're looking for another career, get the fuck out. Right. Because you're, <laughs> you're done. You can, you have to like back yourself almost into a corner and make the Correct. consequences of, of, of not succeeding so dire and unthinkable that you will do whatever. Well, you have to, to be willing to take the pain. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the thing with growth is that as soon as pain hits, people run away and go, oh, this is like this is not trending the right way. So I'm just going to go and find something else that's more comfortable. Right. And I think if they walk through the pain and say, I felt the pain, but also felt how to get better at it and get out of it, then they're not afraid of it the next time they run into it. And I think that's what is part of that building block that makes somebody successful in three years, you know, doing something because they've endured the pain on and off. And they understand the depth of the industry in and out versus someone who says as soon as it gets tough or as soon as they project something's happening, they run away doing something else. You know, like I have a lot of people coming to me and they're like, why should I learn watch trading? There's potentially a recession coming up. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of fortunes made in recessions on assets too. So the point is that you're more concerned about the money you're going to make watch trading than you are about learning the skill. So it doesn't matter. Um, In terms of, wait, before we go any further, before we go I want to stop the video portion of the podcast right here. What we do always, we do the last 10 minutes strictly audio. Okay. Why? I can't say it's a trade secret. No, okay. just do that. <laughs> we just do that. And there's, cause there's some things we want to keep off YouTube, but like you know, very, YouTube's a very family friendly. <laughs> so now I'm going to ask you the dirty, disgusting shit okay. about you. I want to know what happened when you drove those Lamborghinis up and got the girls in the car. <laughs> all right. So tell me of all the cars you've ever owned, I know I'm just changing the subject here, but I, I haven't asked you this before we make our jump to the audio portion, right? Tell me what's the craziest car that you ever owned, that, the, the hottest car? Hottest car I've ever owned that I've enjoyed, mm-hmm. uh, Lamborghini Performante. Mm-hmm. They're actually the recent one they came out with. I thought that's one of the most phenomenal, like just exotics ever made. Coolest car I've ever owned, I just bought like a week before I came here and I fell in love with, uh, old 2006 Ford GT, the supercar. You know, mm. I, I enjoy that car a lot more. Like really? that I ever expected. I bought it just for like shits and giggles because the movie came out and I was like, yeah, the oh, Shelby Ford thing? yeah, like the Ford versus Ferrari thing. And I thought, oh, well, cool. I'm going to just milk this for marketing, you know, for my exotic car hacks right. platform. And then when I drove it, I fell in love with it. And I said, so I just was he has the Ford GT. Is that what you got? Yep. That's the Ford GT, except that's like the stock version. But what, what kind did you get? I, oh, I have a red one just like that, but uh, it's got like wheels on it. It's lowered. It's got exhaust and all that shit. So I don't leave my car stock because they're like, yeah. So that's a cool car. Like that's a really, really cool. Fast as shit. Fast as shit. No traction control. Like very uncontrollable. Like chaos going on all the time. You can't see shit. Like the pillars block your view and stuff. So it's very fucking unusable. And most of the parts <laughs> are fucking discontinued. So once you fuck something up, you can't really. Now let's go get to it. let's see the Lamborghini now. If we get to that next, <laughs> let's get a full screen. Yeah, so that's the Performante, uh, and this in a Spider, you know, convertible version is probably the hottest, like, recent. How much for this car? Uh, I paid three fifty for the convertible. And what are you to sell it for? Well, I actually, I just sold. No, it, wait, so wait, I, 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 yeah, I just sold it because I get rid of cars as soon as the markets change, so that way I don't lose money. So what? So you I, I bought it at three fifty five. I sold it at three thirty nine. Okay. Uh, I drove it for a year. So $16,000. Yeah, for yeah for a year, which is like say, less than 1500 bucks a month to drive a brand new Lamborghini. And then the next car, I bought an Aventador, which was the crazy half a million dollar Lamborghini. And I drove that just because I was trying to escape this market. And I drove that for an entire eight months and put 5,000 miles on it uh, and actually got out of that for 15K more than I paid. 
There you go. So, so the basic point is like this idea of like just transferring your wealth into different assets is sure. that from a global standpoint, you never actually, uh, if you look at the end of the year, you don't really lose money. You just kind of keep playing with the same money in the same cars. You know? Pretty cool. So what happened in that Lamborghini? No, what kind of guy were you? Let's talk about your personal. I, I left out your personal life. You seem, like a, you seem like a very interesting guy. Um, you know, tell me about your, tell me about your love life. I mean, when you were younger, before you got, were you the sort of guy that was like hot chicks? Was it the, was it the full deal? Lamborghini, right. hot chicks. So this is like no holding back. No holding no, back. All right. yeah. So I barely got any pussy until I was 18. Okay. Like almost nothing. Like most guys. Yeah. Like, I mean, I was fucking working. I was fat. I was wearing Hawaiian shirts Fair and enough. shit. It wasn't working, yeah. right? Most guys are like that. So, including it, me, by the way. Okay. Like 17. Yeah. Okay. So, it wasn't working, right? So, 18 to 23. Made up a lost time. Well, <laughs> more than made up. Tell me, yeah. So, I want to know the dirty details. All right. So, it's me. Yeah. So, everything not shock from. Me, I yeah. I mean, you got to think about it this way. I'm 18. I start working out. I'm wearing $2,000 suits. You know, like, I'm starting to, like, looked apart and you're like holy shit yeah and like so everything starts opening up right like the idea of like confidence starts coming into the game and then i got all these years to make up for that i didn't do anything right so everything from the crazy shit that happened in the banks like in the safe deposit rooms to the bathrooms during business hours like what like what i mean whatever fuck you want to just use your man to bang someone in a safe course really yeah like a customer no employees employees yeah no shit like Really? And yeah. that, this is back in the day when this stuff was yeah. like allowed, right? No, it wasn't allowed. I mean, it's frowned upon. No, 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 but I mean, there's a difference though. It was frowned upon with a... Well, you no, know, I mean, it was consensual. Well, listen, it wasn't like they fucking, they don't want right, it. But but in the Stratton, you know, human resources manual, you know, we had like a strict dress code, you know, but the unspoken words was like, you know, for girls, short skirts, the shorter the better, plunging necklines, the lower the better, high heels, the higher the better. <laughs> Okay, so, and like so you, you would never, think that, and you <laughs> never knew when you were going to have when you opened up a coat closet or a freaking bathroom. Store, like, what the fuck is going on here? No, the actually the movie thing with the, we had, had that sign like we had a do- Ghostbusters sign with two people doing a doggy style. Like, yeah, no fucking between seven a.m. and not eight p.m. is bad, you know. So I mean, was it like know, that at the you, bank? Yeah, so, wanna, well, something like that. You know? Really, I like, like yeah, that. It was like that for a long time, and then then it How started getting clubs. But what, no, well, hold outside. on, no, no. Then it got worse. Oh, okay. I'm gonna tell you about something that got worse. So it got so bad, like meaning that like, it was so like happening all the time that it was like shit. This is gonna be bad. Right. I'm eventually gonna lose my job, right? Like right. someone's gonna fucking carry on. So what I did then is I was managing like a bunch of banks. So I would go and rent out these like cool minivans and I would park them in like six core locations and I would rent them for a month at a time just so I had a place to take the chicks in between <laughs> to found them during work hours. There was a similar thing going on Stratton, but it was hookers and they were in the ba- in the actual garage at a van and there was hookers like that would like just sit there all day. And I wasn't part of this, by the way. And I don't I, even then I wouldn't have condoned this. <laughs> But it was like a Stratton. There was like thousands of people. It was like its own independent society. So there's all this shit going on. You don't even know about it. Like I found that like five years later, there was like hookers in the basement. You know? Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't do the hooker line. thing at the time. Really? That, yeah, that came later. Like then the strippers <laughs> and shit came later. Well, but during the, during the, the, corporate America days it was only like like employees customers and shit that were like smoking hot that just worked out you know really yeah. and then how about the whole like club thing you know northern Virginia I'm sure there's a big well, I mean, political, yeah, it's like political bullshit, people like everybody's impressed by nothing but also the girls are like fucking like three there like they think they're a ten but they're like three versus they're the more, Miami they're, girls they're, they're a political th- like a th- yeah like they think they're three. smart so that yeah. makes them like fucking better looking but it really doesn't like there's it's like lost so you go to Miami like a fucking Three in Miami is a 10 in D.C. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, let's keep it clean here. So anyway, 
So, but still, so at these, so the thing of Washington, like I went to school, I know the area really well. So you were in Northern Virginia, was mm-hmm. it? Where exactly? Uh, Fairfax. Okay, yeah, sure. So I Falls went to school area. at American University. So back then, you know, it was like D.C., North Virginia, yeah, yeah, Meta, exactly. right? yeah. yeah, the whole it's thing. It's grown a lot over there. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's wild. So, so, but, you know, that's, it's interesting because every city, like, has its own heartbeat. Like, you know, and here it's the movie, yeah. it's the movie industry. Yeah. In New York, it's Wall Street. Down there, it's politics. Six, yeah. Right? Miami, it's who the fuck knows. It's yeah, like, uh, Miami like is just fucking open. It's just full on, right? <laughs> Miami's like an amalgamation of every, like, you know, s- you know, sordid, evil, great yeah, yeah. thing, great, wonderful, wonderful thing all yeah. wrapped up into the one. Best, yeah. Right? You know? So, um, when you were in, what was it, the, the club scene like? Like, it was like, is it, because I always found, like, when I was down, I was young, I was in my, my early, you know, late teens, early 20s, and, um, it's like the it's weird. Like it was like almost very different than New York. It was like a different kind of it vibe. It is, yeah. It wasn't like that exciting, honestly. I hated yeah. it. I left Northern Virginia as soon as I fucking could. Like as soon as I was like, this is done, and I don't rely on being here to make money. Then I was like, I'm. And where was out. your first stop after that? Uh, well, Florida? yeah, I went to Florida. Yeah, in eleven, I went to Palm Beach. I kind of fell in love with Boca, that area, et cetera, and it was within reach of Miami. So I decided, fuck it, I'm staying there. You know, and that was really it. And that's where you are now. Yep, and I'm just kind of fucking chilling there all the time. So you're in, is it West Palm or Boca you're in? Well, I'm in Delray, which is, Del Rey. yeah, near Boca. I have some very good friends there, yeah. So, yeah, good, really good Yeah, friends and there. I keep bouncing back between Boca and Delray. Like, I like properties that have large, like, lot lines, and it's hard to find in those busier areas. What do you yeah. have, like, one acre of zoning? I got, I got one and a half acres, and which is hard to find again, and I have, like, 6,000 square feet with a 40-car driveway, four-car garage, and then I have a separate warehouse for more cars and more shit, and then a man cave for more fun. All right, so listen, we are coming to an end of a great thing. I want to thank you for coming on oh, the podcast. It was amazing. A lot of great information. Uh, I think that you're a testament to what really, you know, just hard work, ingenuity, vision, and also honesty and integrity, which I respect you for. Yeah. So um, everybody, want to check this man out. What's the best place to find out more about you? So the easiest thing to do is go check me out at learnfrompj.com. Learnfrompj.com, which is just a place where I have all of the different things. So regardless that it's cars, watches, or business, or just my books, or anything else, you can find okay, it. All again, learn from L-E-A-R-N, from F-R-O-M-P-J.com. Yep, as simple as it gets. Awesome. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in to another awesome episode of the wolf's den share this with your friends share this with your mother your father your aunt your uncle your sister anybody and everybody because everyone should hear what pj has to say and there's always a few laughs from the wolf in the wolf's den take care god bless you and we'll see you in the next episode